Welcome to Green and Red, Scrappy Politics for Scrappy People, a regular podcast on radical environmental and anti-capitalist politics, brought to you by Bob Bazanka and Scott Parker. Hello, everybody. This is Bob Bazanko, co-host of the Green and Red podcast, and I'll be going solo today because Scott is away on assignment. Uh, before we get started, as always, we want to thank you for supporting us. And please, uh, if you're watching this on YouTube, subscribe. If you're listening to this on your favorite podcast platform, subscribe. And check out the show notes, which will give you information on how to uh, follow us on social media and how, if you really like us, how to support us on Patreon or with a one-time donation. So we really do appreciate it. Uh, today, um, I'm really looking forward to this because it's something that I've actually studied most of my academic career and it's something that most Americans, even people who live through this experience, aren't really aware of. And so we're going to talk, especially, we've talked a lot of stuff, but especially we're going to talk about Laos during the 1960s and 70s, uh, an area that I think most people know is right next to Vietnam. It's it's um, a bit west of Vietnam, but it was a big part of what we call today the, the Vietnam War. What I think most people don't know is that during the war, about 2.1 million tons of bombs were dropped. Uh, on Laos, which is more than everything dropped against Germany and, and Japan and World War II combined. Um, in 1964, the U.S. began what it called a secret war, which, as I always point out, was not secret to the people who were in the area, which was being bombed uh, against Laos. It started with B-52, which are big, huge bombers, uh, sorties, and a B-52 sortie can saturate an area of two square miles. So it's, it's incredibly damaging and deadly. Uh, it was so bad that a United Nations representative at the time said that the bombing in the Plain of Jars, which is an ancient heritage site in, in central Laos, was so intense, in his words, that no organized life was possible in the villages. It's incredibly brutal. The United States flew over 580,000 sorties, bombing missions. Uh, it was That's like a, a, a plane load of bombs dropping about every eight minutes or so, and that's 24-7 for about almost a decade. But I think one thing that I think we're gonna even focus on a little more today is the US also dropped 270 million cluster bombs or sometimes called bomblets, which are about the size of a baseball. And um, about 80 million of those 270, which is about 30% never detonated, which means they're still there, they're still live. And 40 years later, less than 1% of those 80 million cluster bombs, the bomblets um, have been destroyed. So there's nearly 80 million bombs still unexploded. Uh, and we refer to these as unexploded ordnance or UXOs. And over 25,000 people in Laos have been killed or injured since the war ended. So it's it's a huge issue. Laos, uh, actually, if you look at it in terms of its size and the number of people, it's probably the most bombed place in, in, the, in the history of modern warfare. So today, after that, um, I'm very, very pleased and happy and, and humbled to introduce uh, Sarah Kulabdara, who has a, a really fascinating background. Um, first off, I'm very proud to say she's a graduate of the Ohio State University, which is the best university in the country, uh, and it's my alma mater as well, uh, where you graduated with like, I don't know, like two, two majors, I think, uh, international finance and marketing, and a minor, and you speak four languages, and it's just just really amazing stuff. Um, worked as a nonprofit, it, I think started at the United Way in Central Ohio, and then worked for other nonprofits. Uh, you were an economic consultant, traveling all over the world. And um, now, and this is the capacity in which we're gonna talk today, you are the executive director of an organization called Legacies of War, and uh, which is a US-based US advocacy and educational group especially dealing with this issue that we just talked about in Laos. So uh, after that very long introduction, introduction, thank you so much uh, for joining the Green Red Podcast, Sarah. Thanks for having me, Bob, and go Bucks. Go Bucks, um, guys. O-H-I-O, yeah. Yes. Um, why don't we start just kind of, uh, this issue is, is personal to you as well. So if you want to just start by kind of talking about your own story and you know how you, you know, where you grew up and how you got here and how you got involved in this particular issue. Uh, by the way, you have a blog uh, called, I had to write it down, Love is Why. And you have some really poignant stories on there too, which I think you know you, you might want to talk, like a couple of them are really, really powerful. So. Sure, sure. Well, thank you. Um, 
And you're absolutely right. You know, uh, the general public um, does not know about the American Secret War in Laos, and most people actually um, are not aware of anything about Laos, let alone know where it is, right? Um, you know, when I meet people and I share with um, I have a pretty unique last name and, and name. I share with them that I'm Laotian from Laos and you know, I usually get like a blank stare or a question of like, where, where is that, you know, or um, is that even a country, right? Um, but yet, you know, Laos was one of the most strategic location for three US presidents. But for me, you know, as you mentioned, um, it is very personal because I was actually born in Laos um, and raised in the southern part uh, called Baxe and Jampasak. Um, you know, back in the day, it used to just be one area called Jampasak. And I grew up uh, near like, um, gosh, my family can trace our roots all the way back to the ancient time where Laos was once called Lansang or Land of Million Elephant, the Million Elephant Kingdom, right? Um, I was raised by my grandmother and great-grandmother and aunties. Um, and they used to take me to uh, Wat Pu, which is actually one of the ancient historical sites um, uh, of Laos. And it's actually an area where um, it's very important. You know, I bring it up because it's actually one of the areas that was bombed during the secret war that you mentioned. But um, I had no idea as a child, well, you know, I actually thought that this was a place that um, endured the test of time. You know, it's an ancient spot that's very important to Lao people. My grandmother and great-grandmother used to just let me run around um, and I would chase the goats, the monkeys, and my favorite, the cats. Um, the air was just so beautiful and it smelled like fragrant uh, jumpa flowers, which is Laos's national flower. And I would climb the tree and bring down uh, these flowers for my grandmother and aunties and they like to put them in their hair. Um, you know, and my father and mother at the time, they were actually on travel to Cambodia. Um, my dad worked as a doctor and you know, he chose this profession because him and my mother actually lived through the secret war, the bombing that you mentioned. And it shaped how they view the world and it shaped what they eventually wanted to do with their lives. And my dad became a doctor and he actually didn't just work in the remote parts of Laos, helping victims of UXO bombs, um, UXO accidents, but he actually traveled to Cambodia and Vietnam as well. But on the last trip that he took to Cambodia, he came back home and he told us that we were going to move to Vientiane, the capital city. My dad had been offered a, a post in just a little outside um, the outskirts of Vientiane, the capital of Laos, where you know there were actually bombings during that time and there you could still see remnants of bombs from that war. So we moved to Vientiane um, and that's actually the year that um, my parents said, hey, you're actually old enough to go to school now. And I was so excited, you know, because I have two older siblings and I really, really wanted to go to school. And my mom, uh, my mom's a seamstress. So she sewed um, a backpack for me. And I must have checked it like a million different times. And I don't even know how I fell asleep, but I'm pretty sure I did because <laughs> the next day I woke up and I raced down the stairs, uh, just gobble up my rice porridge, um, took my dad's hand and raced towards the door. But we were stopped by my baby brother, Mickey, and he actually wanted to go to school with us. And after a long argument, which seemed like a decade, my dad agreed and said, all right, you could walk with us. And so, you know, off we went. And even though my school was only maybe two or three blocks away and I could have probably walked on my own, um, there was only one path that my dad would allow his children to take. And it's been 30 years, but I can still hear his voice um, just telling Mickey and I that this is the only path that we were allowed to take and we were not allowed to veer off the path. Otherwise the tigers and the nagas and the ghosts will come and get us. And he would, you know, pretend um, to tell us these mythical stories, stories of mythical creatures to scare us. 
and chase us as Mickey and I are screaming um, and running towards the school. You know, I just remember like when he uh, got us into the school, uh, looked at Mickey and I, and I whispered to Mickey, like, um, it would be kind of cool to meet a tiger, but I'm really glad that I heed his warnings, you know, because uh, what my dad, you know, and my mom was really worried about was pretty much us stepping on a bomb or picking it up. You know, you mentioned it's the size of a baseball um, and it to a child and especially to a child like that's five or six, they would mistaken this as a toy ball and imagine what would happen if they start playing with it, right? So, you know, uh, we, we stayed in Vientiane and after a year, I finished one year of school. And that's when my parents said, hey, um, we're actually going to move to a far off land um, and you get to meet your aunties and uncle and all these cousins that you've never met before, you know? So my dad and my two older siblings left first for the US. And then later on, my mother and Mickey and I followed. And I just remember getting off the plane and I actually have a picture of this on my blog of me coming like to the US uh, holding a, we call it a huat, but it's uh, a basket that you use to make sticky rice, right? Um, and landing, you know, in, in DC. Um, coming out, it was so, so cold, but I didn't actually even like notice the cold until like my mom mentioned it, but I was just so overwhelmed by like being reunited with my family, the warmth and, and love of my aunties um, and an uncle who haven't seen my father and my mother for decades, you know, because they fled during the war while my dad and my mom stayed behind in Laos. And we piled into my aunt's car and we drove we passed the White House, the Pentagon, you know, the places that made these decisions to bomb this tiny country and that actually still shaped and affect my life to this day, right? And I just remember seeing like how big everything was and how fast the cars were moving. And we landed, um, well, we, we finally stopped um, in Virginia where my aunts were living. And it was a big giant building and I looked up at my aunt and I said, um, wow, you live here? Like, this is a huge mansion and it's everyone in America rich? Um, and she laughed, of course. And she said, come along, little one. Uh, we got up, you know, climbed the stairs and she showed us her apartment, which Bob turns out to be just a two bedroom with now four families living there. And it was just like shocking, you know, and the my biggest memories from this is my cousins, uh, ones around my age, um, Dennis, showing me Skittles. And I thought it was the best thing on earth, right? <laughs> like getting to eat Skittles. And um, I didn't mind being cramped in this space, but it was just uh, so much fun and new. And my cousins, I didn't understand a word of what we were saying because I didn't speak English at the time and they were not fluent in Lao. Um, until, you know, one day, like, um, I was looking out the window and I screamed to my mother saying like, mom, the sky is falling. What is going on? Right. I've never seen snow in my life. And I know that you and I shared this, that I love winter to this day because I fell in love with snow. Um, I remember just being able to go and play it out there with my cousin and, and just meeting people that didn't look like me and everything was just so new and different to a six-year-old, right? I just completely felt like, even though we didn't understand each other, we were still able to um, be friends, if you will, right? Like, um, I still remember those kids to this day. But, you know, like many immigrants and refugee families, um, my father could no longer practice medicine. He could no longer be a doctor. His degree meant nothing um, in this new land, new home for us. So we moved around to places that we felt we can find opportunities for my parents to get stable enough jobs to support four kids. So, you know, we piled in my dad's car and we, um, we left. We moved from Virginia to Illinois, 
from Illinois to Nebraska and then back to Virginia. And then finally we settle in Ohio. And that's where like we really um, made Ohio like our home. And we actually didn't think or talk about Laos as much. And I actually didn't know the history of the American Secret War that you just shared with us earlier until I was maybe a teenager. That's when I finally realized like the sacrifice that my parents made um, to bring us to this new country, this new home or adopted homeland. Um, and, and they just told us like surface level, right? They told us there was a war, it's over now and you're here and you're safe. Um, and I never actually pried um, and dig deeper into what they experienced because um, each time that I tried to ask, it was just too painful for them to share further, you know, about what they saw, what they had to do until later on um, when I actually discover legacies of war. You know, I remember my older brother Bay was working in DC at the time and he sent me a link to our website and I could not stop myself from reading, you know, everything that I, I saw on there, um, watching like videos um, of hearings that our founder, Janapaka Musa did, you know, just learning like the sheer um, stats that you mentioned, right? You know, from 1964 to 1973, over 2.1 million tons of bombs dropped during 580,000 bombing mission, like equaling to a plane load of bombs every eight minutes, 24 hours a day for nine straight years. Those are during one of the most crucial time in my parents' um, lives. You know, my dad was only 14 at the time when the first bomb was dropped. And, you know, later on, when he finally opened up, it was during like the last couple of months of his life, um, he passed away sadly in 2017. But during that time, I think it was sort of like a way for him to find healing and telling me his experience. And that was when I finally understood like why an organization like Legacies of War had to exist um, in order for us to resolve this issue. But I think one of the other things that we don't talk about enough is just how we're the space for the diaspora community to heal from it, right? You know, as a 14 year old, um, my father was actually um, living in a temple at the time as is common practice during that, that period for um, the eldest boy of the family to receive his education in the city. He had to live with monks and um, serve as sort of like the monks assistants, right? Run errands for them. But when the bombs were dropping, he was only a couple of blocks away. But they knew from that time that um, war was brewing and they didn't understand it, like understand why, but why America was dropping these bombs. But they knew that they had to flee, right? They knew that they had to hide in places um, that they can find. And the majority of the time was in caves. Caves where they stayed in there um, during the day with no food, no water, but they came out during the night to find what they can find in order to eat and survive. Um, you know, uh, it, it, like just reflecting back, it made me really ashamed of, um, you know, oftentimes when I was a rowdy teenager, um, complaining about only having noodles to eat, you know, ramen noodles to eat or something, but my parents had to eat insects, um, you know, dried rice, anything that they can actually find. And they had to move around as the bombings were dropped along the Ho Chi Minh Trail, the border between Laos and Vietnam, right? Um, no one told them like that this was all part of a war that Laos was not a part of, but Laos became collateral damage because in order for, from a US perspective during that time, right? We as a country bombed Laos to destroy the supply routes of the Vietnamese going from north to south and vice versa, right? And when the bombs were being dropped, it was indiscriminate, it doesn't matter, you know? And the majority of the people who were bombed were civilians. They were not the, the, um, the intended target. So just hearing this from my parents and learning that 
it's still a problem to this day, like you mentioned, Bob, um, because, you know, about 1% of the bombs have been cleared. So that leaves a lot more to be done, meaning like five decades later, children are still being killed from this. Uh, farmers who are just trying to farm their land are um, have to risk their life in order to eat, right? Um, despite the dangers, they still have to do it because that is their only source of livelihood. And I'll just kind of pause there for a second. Okay. Well, yeah, and, and I'm, I'm going to be a history professor for a second here, because like I said, I don't think a lot of people know about this. There were ostensibly two reasons the United States targeted Laos. Um, there was actually an ongoing revolution in Laos at the same time as Vietnam and Cambodia, really. The, the, the communist group that passed out Laos, so the United States wanted to keep them out of power, which didn't work because in April of 1975, all three countries of Indochina, the, the communists took over. Um, and as you said, the United States was claimed to be bombing the Ho Chi Minh Trail, which was, which was the supply route. The problem there, of course, is like the plane of jars is nowhere near the border. It's, it's you know, so it is pretty indiscriminate uh, bombing. Um, also, the United States, I think very few people know, invaded Laos in 1971 in Operation Dewey Canyon. So it really was, I, I think that's, that's one thing when I teach, I try to spend a fair amount of time on the so-called collateral damage because it wasn't just... Vietnam. You also have, uh, and I know this is all emotional stuff, you have a very touching story about, um, I think it had happened on your birthday when a little girl came to your house, and uh, that just really, really kind of got to me. I don't know if you want to just say something about that, because I think, you know, we can talk about numbers, the number of bombs, and the percentages of exploded ordnance and things like that, but this is the real, the real, the reality of it is, is actually very yeah. personal. Yeah, and, um, you know, as long as it's been, you know, uh, I, I mentioned earlier that this war continues, this period in history continued to plague the lives of the Lao people, um, as well as like people who are immigrants or refugees like myself, who um, this is our new home, you know. I love this country so much, but um, this this still remains something that's unresolved, right? Like, uh, while I'm proud of like America's leadership in being the biggest funder of UXO removal and victims assistance, there's still so much more that we can do. But, you know, to answer your question, I wrote about that piece because my father and I actually share a very similar birthday. Um, you know, his is February 4th and mine's the 10th. We used to joke that ours combined make Valentine's Day. <laughs> um, and, and I, uh, I'm very, I was very close to my father and, um, you know, we were living in Laos in that same house that I mentioned on the outskirts of Vientiane. And my dad promised me a paper doll for my birthday. And I waited and waited for him to come home one day and he just never came home and I fell asleep. But when I woke up, you know, I found the paper doll and a kotom, which is like one of my favorite dessert. It's like rice and wrapped in banana leaf uh, with whatever people put in it. <laughs> sometimes it's banana, sometimes it's taro, sometimes it's anything else that you can find. Um, and I was still very upset with him and I didn't know why, but my dad um, and another village doctor was actually taking care of a farmer, um, a farmer and his wife and their daughter who is very similar to my age. Um, they were just planting crops and just using like a hole to break the ground. When it struck a UXO and one that's called Bombi, which is the size of a baseball. And that explosion, um, Luckily, you know, the mother was carrying the daughter at the time, like she threw her like across the field to avoid her getting hurt, but the parents died instantly. And my dad was one of the only doctors in the village at the time. And he raced to that site along with his colleague and the little girl lost like a leg and she was badly injured. And there was nothing that they could do for the mom and dad. So she became an orphan. So my dad and the other doctor like searched the whole village to try to figure out um, if the little girl had any family and they found her grandmother. And so they took her there and just tried to help her as much as they can. You know, you have to think about how Laos is one of the most least developed countries in the world. 
And even during this time, this was, you know, probably like 1989 or 1990, um, early 1990, they still didn't have access to things like prosthetics or the best medical care. The sites that my father's operating on was either like in the villages or just in um, clinics, right? So not actually a hospital with all the right equipment or even like um, the best state-of-the-art equipment. Many of the stuff were inherited from like the 50s and 60s from China or Russia or like Americans, right? So they did the best that they could. And they actually, um, my dad actually made a crutch for her out of trees just in the forest, um, along with a couple of other villagers. And then months, you know, went by, which led to um, me discovering just sort of why my dad never made it home was we got a knock on the door and it was this little girl and her grandmother bringing like rice and probably like a chicken to the house. And um, I just remember how this little girl also had pretty much like the same paper doll that I had. And um, she actually tried to give it to me, you know, because I think as my dad was trying to nurse her uh, back into health, um, he actually bought her one as well. And it was sort of his way of like getting her distracted because, you know, at the time it's so hard, even if you have painkillers, you're doing this operation sort of um, old school, right? Like what we would see in the US like in the 1800. So he was just his way of like distracting her. And, you know, my mom told me this story like later on about, and I recall her, but I didn't know the story behind it. And he said, that was why your dad was late. And this little girl, um, you know, your dad told her um, about you and about how he was trying to get home to you for your birthday. So that moment, like, I would never forget, you know, and that, even though that was in 1990 or so, the same type of things still happen to this day. Like earlier this year, five children were walking home from school in the outskirt of Laos. And this is an area where we, you know, feel that um, most of the bombs have been cleared, but it's not the case, even though it's the most populated area in Laos. They came upon what looked like a ball and they picked it up and started throwing it. And it killed two of the children immediately. And the other three children would never be able to walk to school again. And this happened this year, you know, in 2021. And this is something that will continue to happen unless we remove these bombs, you know, unless we start educating more of the locals about this issue, because many of them were not born yet during this time. They can't remember the war. They don't know that these bombs are scattered all throughout the country. You know, in fact, like 17 out of the 18 provinces in Laos are contaminated. This means that over 50% of the population are living in danger and they have no choice but to make it work for them, right? Knowing that if I am to start planting crops here, um, there's a chance that I might strike a bomb that might kill me. And it's not just the cluster bombs that you mentioned. We're still finding 500 pound bombs, 1000 pound bombs littered all throughout the country. Like a third of the country is really, really unusable. And it's really a huge problem for just growth and development and just in general, like basic survival, right, of, of the people, because 75% of the people really depend on farming for their livelihood. And you take, you know, you take that away from them, they can't live. Yeah. Um, just a reminder, you're uh, listening or watching the Green and Red podcast. I'm Bob Bazenko and Scott's not here today. And we are talking with Sarah Kulabdara from um, Legacies of War Project, which focuses on um, the continuing crisis 50 years later. And you just talked about that incident. Um, you know, it's 50 years ago in April that the United States invaded Laos. So the war is, is ongoing. Um, I want to talk just a little bit about the project, and what the, the goal of, of Legacies of War is, and then we can, you know, kind of talk a little bit more about Laos or, or whatever else you want. But, but I think it's important to, to know that there are people out there doing this now. And, and I'm, I'm sure you're going to say it anyway, but, you know, uh, you can talk a little bit, too, about what people in Laos, what the Laotian government or people in Laos or groups in Laos are doing, as well as what you want the U.S. and other nations to kind of do to help. 
Yeah, no, absolutely. So Legacies of War's mission is to build more awareness about the American Secret War in Laos and to make sure that it is part of American consciousness, right? This is not something that we're currently teaching our children in school, right? And if they're lucky, they might get a taste of this in college. You know, I'm really thankful for folks like you who are educating people about this, um, this issue. And especially, I think young people need to really know about this for many reasons. One, to know our own history as Americans and to also know that we're responsible and we should be the one taking the lead on resolving this with the people of Laos. Two, um, we also advocate for the removals of these bombs and victims assistance, meaning we ask Congress for money to continue to fund us. You know, and I'm really, really um, uh, thankful of America's leadership like in, in being the biggest funder of UXO removal and clearance efforts in Laos. But just to give you some uh, stats, um, we actually started funding clearance efforts in Laos in the mid 1990s. And funding was around uh, like one to $3 million at the time. And then Legacies was founded in 2004. From the time that we were founded all the way to now, funding has consistently grown because of our advocacy efforts, meaning like us roaming the halls of Congress, telling people about what happened and why we should care about this and how we can help, right? Um, I'm very, very proud to be able to share that this is the highest funding level in history. Um, this year is at $40 million a year for UXO removal, as well as victims assistance. Now to put you know, um, things into perspective, while it is the highest in history and it is going in the right direction, I'd be remiss if I didn't mention that we spent $17 million a day for nine straight years to bomb Laos and that's an equivalent to today's dollar. So we're not doing enough knowing that only about 1% of the bombs have been cleared thus far, right? So we have a long way to go, but it can actually happen within our lifetime if funding continue to increase year after year. And that's why Legacies of War exists and we will never stop like pushing for this and making sure that our members of Congress know how important it is to Americans, right? Like, you know, even though Lazies of War is the organization that's representing us on the Hill in congressional meetings, it takes the whole entire like population, right? We are able to be successful because we have strong congressional support from the people within each of the different districts who follow Legacy's work, who are there when we ask folks to write to their members of Congress, right? When we do our grassroots campaign, um, we're also very, very fortunate um, to have the support of Egg and Gum, um, which helps us with all of our advocacy efforts on the Hill. Um, one of my board member uh, is, um, is from Egg and Gum, you know, Ed Pagano, and he often goes to these meetings with me along with his uh, colleagues. So, you know, it takes a lot to get the proper attention each year, but it is very important because, you know, it, it, it's what will allow the groups that are working on the ground to continue their work, right? So our role is to make sure that the money's there through like our advocacy effort um, on the Hill. Uh, and when the funding is secure, like the $40 million, for example, Legacies of War does not receive a penny of that funding and we do not want any of it. We want it to go straight into the country to demining groups like MAG, uh, HALO, uh, Norwegian People's Aid, um, uh, Humanity and Inclusion, and others that are working to do the clearance efforts, as well as groups like Rural Education, who does mind risk education, meaning um, they go to the different schools and they teach children about the danger of these bombs and to show them the difference between a bomb and a ball, right? Yeah, yeah. Um, you know, I would also say that the Lao government themselves are also taking responsibility and, and efforts in clearing this themselves because uh, UXO Lao is the national team that does much of the clearance work as well as the Lao armed forces. So, you know, this is a huge, huge effort, not only from like the Lao themselves, but the international community that cares about this, um, that supports it year after year. Um, and I'll also say too, like, 
In addition to looking at the UXO issue, um, there's also been conversation as it relates to the Agent Orange issue. Um, you know, and Legacies has been a part of these conversation with our partners, um, the War Legacies Project. You know, our names are so similar. <laughs> but, you know, this is another piece of the Legacies of War issue that Laos is still dealing with um, on a day-to-day -day basis. I think Americans, if they're familiar with this, are far more familiar with the Agent Orange issue. And I know that, you know, today even there are still children being born with really severe birth defects. And there are still orphanages and, you know. Um, is, is that kind of the case in Laos where you still have, you know, kind of uh, these international, I'm assuming these are international kind of NGOs who are there doing the work. Um, are there still, you know, kind of orphanages and, and medical centers and things like that, uh, you know, to deal with this specific problem? Yeah, um, I wish there were medical centers to deal with um, these health impediments caused by Agent Orange, right? But there are not nearly enough hospitals even in Laos. Um, the one group that I know of is the War Legacies Project who is working um, in Laos right now to just uh, gather the research related to this. And I'll also um, offer this up. There was an article that was published um, by George Black uh, from the New York Times on this. And that's really what set, um, set the stage for conversation between the Lao governments and the US government as it relates to efforts to uh, remedy the Agent Orange impacts in Laos, right? Because again, um, it was a secret war and many people are not aware that Laos was contaminated by Agent Orange, Agent Purple, Agent, you know, Black. Um, there's so much that we still like don't have enough data on that I think the first thing is if there were funding, if funding is secure, um, it would go towards just this research and just collection of data. The actual work will probably be years in the making, right? Um, you know, for, for those who have never traveled to Laos, it's in some parts, it's so remote that in order for us to take a child who has been impacted by Agent Orange or who has had an accident with UXO, sometimes you're going to this village where there's no real road, right? And you're having to take the child maybe on a motorbike and then you have to cross a river and then get them into the city where there is actually a hospital. And that can be hours, if not days. And, you know, groups like War Legacies Project and and some other local groups that are in Laos, like Quality of Life, have these challenges that they have to deal with, right? And that's why it's so important for us to continue these funding and help these groups be able to get the right transportation, you know, get the right like access and perhaps even uh, build an actual hospital that can serve these people with these very specific issues because many of the general like small clinics or village doctors like my father, they can only do so much, but we actually need like the, the latest um, advancement in, in the medical field in order to truly be able to take care of these people and give them as normal of a life as possible despite all the, the health challenges that they're, that they're faced with. $40 million, like you said, it, it's, it's obviously not a small amount of money, but at the same time, it's a little over two days of what the US spent uh, when it was actually flying these, these missions in Laos, you know, in 1977, uh, right after he was inaugurated, Jimmy Carter had a press conference. Somebody asked him if the U S would offer reparations to the countries of Indochina. And he said, no, because the destruction was mutual. So I think that's kind of, there's this kind of U S idea there. I'm just kind of curious. Um, do you meet, I mean, this seems like a no brainer, right? Of course you would donate money, $40 million in the, you know, in the context of the U S budget is nothing, but do you meet people who are, Kind of critical of you or resistant or you know they i think we talked about before do people say you're these this is communist propaganda you know what kind of issues you know kind of confront you when you go trying to get aid for these groups yeah um i would say the majority of the responses from the congressional perspective has been very positive yeah um, we're so lucky to have strong leadership from so many members of congress you know um there's even a uxo um and demining caucus that's actually chaired by um Congresswoman Jackie Spear of California and my own congressman, uh, Bill Johnson of Ohio, um, which, you know, I'm very, very proud of. 
that there even exists a caucus to address some of these issues yeah. and to show support, not just for Laos, but all the countries that are impacted by UXO and, and, and that needs like demining efforts. Um, currently there's 33 members of the group. And you know, I would encourage those who are listening to talk to your representative and tell them to join the caucus and show support for issues that are related to not just Laos, but so many other countries that have been impacted by war and still continue to have to address these uh, legacies issues like bombs, right? Um, you know, the resistance that I do receive, um, I think, you know, the majority of it isn't really resistance, but sort of a shock. Like, um, as a meeting with like some of the staff on the Hill, many of them are so young, right? They're in their early, late 20s or even 30s. And they never knew that this happened. And they're so shocked by it that they don't know how to respond, right? And they're looking at different questions and they want to um, you know, do their due diligence by researching this as well. So it's more like more questions about like why and how can it possibly be that, you know, almost five decades later, we're still addressing this issue and we're still having to clean up. Um, it's outrageous to them, most of them, right? And then the resistance that I get, um, you know, from some members, it's, I wouldn't say it's a resistance, it's more of like an alternative suggestion, right? Um, one person actually said to me, um, don't you think China should be cleaning this up? You know, China has so much money and China has so much influence on Laos. Why don't the Chinese fund this? And, you know, my response is, um, it's a problem that, you know, we as Americans have such a strong history and tie with Laos that we should be working in partnership with the people of Laos, the government of Laos to resolve this issue. And yes, you know, more support from the international community are always welcome, but I think we should be the leader in this as Americans. And especially, I think, um, as far as like the general public, there's overwhelming support, you know, and I would dare say if someone has time or bandwidth to do this, if you do a poll of Americans in general, I think the majority would overwhelmingly support us continuing to fund and grow that funding and grow capacity and work with the Lao to figure out like the best way to resolve this and how we can best achieve this and achieve this within our lifetime, right? Um, some of the other responses that we receive is, uh, it's mainly misinformation, right? It's people saying that, oh, so you guys are lobbying Congress for money so that you can support Laos, which Laos, by the way, is a communist government. And that is just a lack of education. And I think past sentiments from during like um, sentiments from during the war time. Um, depending on which side the people were on, right? And the, um, you know, I, I just want to clarify when Congress approves this funding and when funding is actually allocated, it goes to the demining organizations and international nonprofits, which the majority of our Americans that receive these funds to do the work. And there is a check and balance, right? Obviously, they have to send reports. It's very, very, um, structured, right? Like the US government is not just going to give money and then like say, bye, see you later. They're going to check to see what the progress are, right? And it is not going directly into the government of Laos. That is not something that the American government does. It is very, very um, clear that it's going to do two things. That is to clear bombs and to assist with victims. So I think it's mainly, um, you know, we probably are decades away from resolving like old sentiments from during that time because you rightfully noted that during the 50s, there was revolution brewing in Laos, right? So there was a civil war between like the royal group and then the other group, the Patate Lao, which depending on how you look at it, right? Like this is a different time and a different place. And if you look at the history of Laos, the country itself has history of being oppressed, of being subjugated by so many foreign powers that one would argue that it was a revolution that happened and there was international um, intervening of the different groups, the, the two factions that were in play, right? Like 
um, the U.S. supported the royal side, and then uh, Vietnam, China, Russia supported the other side. And there's still this, um, I, I guess, past trauma, right, of people feeling like they had to flee their country because they were supporting a side at loss, or they felt like there was so much stuff that they didn't agree with, right? And we, our approach is really to tell the history and just to share with the people that we have to understand the history in order to know like how to work and how to work in an effective way with a foreign government, right? Because I'm an American citizen and like I identify as Americans. For me to work with them, I need to understand the, tr the overall history um, as it relates to how the people look at it. And also coming from my own authentic truth of how I see it from my own family's perspective. But I think that all helps as we continue to um, truly address what really matters now is what do we do from here and why should we work together and how can we best work together in order to resolve this so that we can see it clear within our lifetime and, and give the people and especially um, the, the next generation of Laotians hope um, for this, their, their safety as well as the progress of their overall lives. You know, in, in January 1961, right before the inauguration, Dwight Eisenhower, who was leaving office, met with John Kennedy, and he actually told him that the most important spot in Asia was Laos, and he never mentioned Vietnam. So, yeah, the U.S. has a, a long history there. Also, when I hear about this, you know, this kind of continuing problem, it reminds me of things like the Flint water crisis or toxic dumps in the U.S., where it's very hard to hold people uh, accountable, and these continue these problems continue um, to persist. You, you have, I, I was looking at, at your website and one thing that kind of seems interesting and kind of, kind of intriguing is you, it says you have a national traveling exhibition. I just wonder, you know, what, what that is. Yeah, um, I can actually show you. Oh, awesome. <laughs> um, so I have it right we, here. We get, we get visuals. That's, this is awesome. Yeah. yeah. So um, you may recognize this, Bob. Um, yeah. There is, uh, there is actually a book um, called Voices from the Queen of Jars. I uh, should pull it off my shelf here. Um, oh, whoop, wrong side. <laughs> there we go. Voices from the Plane of Jars. And this is- I, I have that in a box somewhere. Yeah. Oh, you do? Um, somewhere, yeah, somewhere in a box. I don't, I don't know, but I, I, I have that, yeah. Yeah, so this is actually a very, very important um, piece of history that you know I'm holding in my hand. And it's actually part of Lexi's origin story. Um, so there was an American, uh, Fred Bramfman, who was in Laos during- We've, we've actually talked about him on this show before. Oh, you did? Okay. Yeah, so we talked about it. Very, very well. With, um, with our mutual friend, Clinton, in fact. Oh, okay. Got it. Okay. So Fred, Fred and Noam Chomsky were very close working together. Mm -hmm. on this. Mm -hmm. yeah. yeah. So um, Fred, uh, just such an amazing, amazing person. Um, he was with IVS, uh, the International Vol Vol Voluntary Service. Um, at, at the time in, in Laos and he was teaching. And this is actually when he discovered what was happening that, you know, our country, the United States was bombing Laos and all these refugees were coming into Vientiane, the capital, um, harm, right? They were missing limbs, they were badly injured and they were starving. And Fred and his friend who is Laotian, Bun Nguyen Luang started talking to these refugees who were displaced in their own country. And Fred and Wen Nguyen started asking them to document like in writing what they saw, why they fled and draw pictures depicting their lives. And these, you know, this was some of the pictures that they drew. Yeah. So then Fred was, he was deeply saddened and outraged. And you're right, Noam Chomsky also visited some of the camps and was just overwhelmed by what he saw. Fred took the drawings and the documentation, like the writings from the villagers, um, had Bunyan help translate it and brought it to the US. And he actually testified in front of Congress in 1971 in his front page, New York Times. And Congress was speechless, you know, they didn't know that this was happening. They had no idea. And that's actually when like the general Amer American public started realizing like the truth behind it. And that's eventually led to um, 
the U.S. pulling out and stopping the bombing. But these original primary source documentation is the only living primary source documentation from that time written by the survivors themselves. And Legacies is the sole keeper of these original drawings as well as writing. And Fred kept it and um, later on, you know, he found the Indochina Resource Center and John Cavana, who is the former executive director of IPS Institute for Policy Studies, um, was his intern and he kept these. And as he was cleaning out the office, he just felt like this is too important for me to just like trash or recycle. And he kept it until one day um, when he, a chance meeting with our founder um, and he asked her, he said, hey, um, your last name is very unique. Do you, are you happen to be Laotian? And of course, Jennifer was like, whoa, how did you know, you know? Um, and so he said, after that meeting, he said, um, I have something that I think you should be the keeper of. And he handed her the whole entire box of these oh, wow. original documentation. Wow. And, you know, like, when you look at these, um, like when you look through these books, I can't help, you know, just as a citizen of this world, as a fellow humankind, um, to not be overwhelmed by, by them, right? Like, it's just the sadness and the pain you feel from it. And when you start reading um, the, um, the description and, and the, the experiences of the people, and some of them are 16 year olds, just depicting seeing like their mother being blown up or their father, you know, or like ancient sites just obliterated from history, right? Like in a, of a group of people just wipe off the face of this planet. You can't help but just feel like a responsibility um, and just that it's the right thing to do is to really, really help resolve this. Yeah. So we um, often would travel with copies of these because they're so old um, that we have to really, really be careful with them as they're fragile though, right? But it is something that we hope to be able to do after the pandemic, um, especially um, all across the US and perhaps even abroad. You know, we did one big tour before in 2012 where we went to, I think 17 different cities um, and inclusive of that is uh, New York at the UN and gave a presentation on this to educate, you know, the, the public, as well as really, really get people to support our advocacy efforts to get funding for these. Um, 2023 will mark the 50th year since the last bomb was dropped in Laos. And, you know, our hope is to be able to do something similar so that more people can be exposed to this and more people can actually see these original drawings and know the story behind them and know like why they're still relevant even like 50 years later. Sure. So uh, pending uh, travel restrictions, um, I hope to be able to do that, but at the very minimum, um, you know, I always welcome opportunity to speak on podcasts like this, um, on, you know, uh, be a guest lecturer at different universities. I've done a couple of them, um, you know, most recently, um, at uh, Pace University uh, in Dr. Matthew Bolton's class. But, you know, I really welcome the chance to just share our work. We actually have like a presentation that's geared towards college students, um, as well as we do um, a camp along with our partner, Lao Heritage Foundation, um, each summer to educate like uh, younger students from, you know, like high school on, on down as well. And we make it um, very fun and engaging and in a way that they would really understand and have an interest to learn further as they continue their education. But yeah, that is that is something that we haven't done in you know the past two and a half years. Yeah, but yeah, yeah. Sure. we hope to be able to do so. And well, in addition to that, um, sorry, I would also add uh -huh. that we also have um, actual like bombies from Laos that we of course remove of all explosive so that people can really see how closely it looks to a ball. When when you do that, let me know because we'd certainly love to have you come through Houston, and I will be telling. Yeah. A lot of my colleagues who are active in, in this, I mean, you know, this is a, 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 one of the biggest um, populations of Vietnamese, but also Lao and, and, and Cambodian. I just have a couple questions and then, um, you know, we want you to tell us like, you know, kind of what, what else you have going and how we can help you out. Um, but one is, is uh, I mean, right now, 
Vietnam is, is kind of a major trading partner and it's kind of had this kind of economic revival and Cambodia is now kind of an area where there are a lot of basically sweatshops. Um, but I don't get the sense Laos has been, I hate to use the word development, but Laos has been kind of built up that way. Is, is that the case? So, I mean, is that also kind of contributing to this problem that just it's, it's kind of out of mind and you don't have people, you know, people are making money in Vietnam and Cambodia. So mm-hmm. um, what, what does Laos look like today? I guess is, is kind of what I'm getting yeah. at. Um, Laos is very unique, right? Like in that it's a landlink country. It's surrounded yes. by like five different countries and it does not have like a major, like uh, it doesn't have access to like the ocean, but it does have the Mekong River. And I would say that much of the challenges and barrier to investments and development in general is because a third of the country is unusable, right? Because of these bonds. Um, I mentioned earlier that 17 out of the 18 province has bombs and it's considered contaminated. So that has been a a big, big issue. Um, Most of Laos depends on agriculture and there is not a lot of money in like agriculture, but I would argue that, um, you know, coffee from Laos, if you ever taste it or tea, it's actually one of the best um, in the world, you know, but I'm biased, right? (laughs) I think that that is an opportunity. Um, I also would note that this year marks the fifth anniversary of Laos and U.S. uh, comprehensive partnership, you know, and it's actually a a, um, a good um, segue into encouraging more Americans to invest in Laos. You know, and especially like, I would say like Lao Americans who have an interest in going back to the country of their parents or their grandparents and to actually do some sort of like partnership with the locals. Um, There is opportunity and there is an openness from like the Lao side to do this. Um, It's just lack like the interest from American side and and the international community, right? The major, major um, investments that I see right now, um, you know, one, um, and it's mainly coming from China, the railway, um, the dams, and there's actually a solar panels, right? Like floating solar panels um, for the Mekong River. And these are some of the different things that like the government um, of Laos, as well as like some of the other partners are working on. And I would also say that the textile industry is also like an opportunity. There's beautiful textiles from Laos and the market there is, um, it's, it's growing, right? Like with a lot of different interests from uh, like folks in the fashion world, right? Um, the other things that I would also say that is an area of opportunity too, is just to grow um, trade and and investments in terms of uh, some of the things that you mentioned, right? Like getting things produced in Laos. There's just not enough infrastructure there because the challenges in, di- in getting the goods in and out of Laos, um, the transportation uh, boasts a challenge. Like there are opportunities, but there's a lot of challenges as well. Um, I think there's a lot of people who have interest in building this. And I think, um, this is also something that the USMC in Laos can work with the local partners, as well as maybe like some of the business council to tap in more. Like Laos is part of the ASEAN um, business council, but because of this, this problem, it, there's only so much that the, the Lao can do themselves, right? So um, I think there just needs to be more investment and dialogue in just getting the infrastructure in place before Laos can actually become one of the major players in ASEAN. And one actually kind of last thing is um, a few months ago, you wrote a, a, a piece in a Responsible Statecraft, which I believe is the publication of the Quincy Institute, mm-hmm. whose uh, executive director is Andy Basevich, who we just had a, a, about a month ago, and he's a, a great guy too. But um, where you talked about, you know, you kind of you know, saying Joe Biden needs to, to do something about this. You want to just kind of talk about the current situation there? Yeah, um, you know, uh, I think most people will remember um, President Obama's historic visit to Laos um, in 2016, right? Where he announced like a big increase in funding in terms of UXO removal and victims assistance to 30 million a year for the next three years, which is a huge jump during that time. And thankfully, um, members of Congress have continued to approve 
like the gradual increase in UXO funding. Um, that particular piece that I wrote was more um, in regards to the US campaign to ban landmines. And this is, um, you know, in response to what President Biden mentioned when he was candidate Biden on, on the trail, like on the campaign trail, that he mentioned that if he were to take office, he would reverse the Trump policy, you know, which basically takes the U.S. backwards in terms of trying to ban these weapons that cause destructions decades after they were dropped or after they're planted in. Um, and it was just something that as Legacies is part of the steering committee of the U.S. campaign to ban landmine plus the Munition Coalition, I offer that piece as a way of sharing how if we don't remove these bombs, if the U.S. does not, you know, ascend to the mine ban treaty or at minimum reverse the Trump policy and go back to Obama's policy of just like, you know, not keeping stockpiles of these weapons and, and, and gradually um, take action to get us to a place where we can join 127 other nations who have already banned these weapons um, and get with like the modern world, right? Like there is no room for these weapons anymore because it is not just like, they're, they're not gonna cause destruction just when we drop them or when we plant them. They're gonna be here decades later after you and I are gone, right? And we owe it to the next generation, our children, to remove these so that they have one less problem to deal with because um, they have so many other problems that they're gonna have to deal with, right? And it was just really urging him to commit to doing what he said he would do, as well as, um, I mean, and which is also the right thing to do, as well as share with him how there are thousands of people who are from the Laotian diaspora community, um, millions of people from the Vietnamese communities and Cambodian communities and other who have fled war-torn countries who are now like Americans, who this is their home. And they agree with this, you know, that we should stop the use of this. We should stop keeping stockpiles of this. And we should join the Mine Ban Treaty as well as ascend to the Convention on Cluster Munition and take a stance and show Americans leadership um, as being like the humanitarian leaders um, in the leaders in, in human rights, right? Um, and show the world that we stand with them and that we're gonna take leadership and, and just make sure that we do the right thing here because if we don't, this will continue to plague um, people like myself, right? Like people who are living in these countries, but people who have a history of how this has affected them and who have seen firsthand um, the lives lost, you know, family and the displacements um, and just the impact of war that's immeasurable, right? Like not only um, are families separated, but people die and people will continue to die that had nothing to do with um, that particular period in history. Yeah, I think it's important. Um, you know, the war ended 50 years ago and during the war, the United States dropped uh, like almost 5 million tons of bombs and Vietnam is the size of like New Mexico and about 3 million or so people were killed. About 15 million people were turned into refugees. And, and this is continuing and it's, you know, it's going to be continuing for a while where you have casualties of Agent Orange of, of bomblets and things like that. So do you want to just um, tell us, uh, and let me put in a, a, a pitch for you. Um, there's a great book out there called the U.S. and Southeast Asian Historical Memory, which is edited by Mark Pavlik and it includes articles by a bunch of people who you'll know, including Clinton, including Noam. And do um, you want to just kind of, if people are interested, and we'll put um, your article and, and other uh, site uh, links in the, in the show notes as well. But if, if somebody's interested in learning more about Legacies of War, they want to do something to help, you know, just kind of tell us, tell us what to do. Yeah, yeah, no, thank you for that. Um, you know, please just follow our work uh, at Legacies of War. Um, it's our Twitter handle, our Instagram page, our Facebook, LinkedIn, um, you know, whatever social media platform you're on, sign up for our newsletter. You know, we try to put out two each month um, and they're written by various different people who are impacted or who have connection to our mission and our work. 
um, you know, stay uh, to, to, to stay abreast of different campaigns that we're running. We have one that's upcoming uh, November 8th is when we'll kick it off. And this is in partnership with uh, Mind Advisory Group, um, the Halo Trust, and the War Legacies Working Group, which is headed by the Stimson Center. Um, in this uh, week-long period, we're asking folks to write to their members of Congress to approve um, $75 million for Laos, Cambodia, and Vietnam. And it would be really helpful if you just took 30 seconds to click like a link that we'll share and to just add your name to that and, and let your uh, members of Congress know that you also care about this and you want to help resolve the issue. Um, you know, as a small, tiny nonprofit of three staff, we're always in the crunch for funding. <laughs> Since we don't take any of the funding that we advocate for, um, we operate on a shoestring budget of 350000 a year. So any donation of a uh, gift of any size is much appreciated. Um, and we'd love to just hear from you, your own personal stories, um, especially from veterans who um, was in Laos during that time or know the history. Um, you know, folks who want to serve on various committees, we're always looking for volunteers to help build our library. Um, you know, Bob mentioned the United States Southeast Asia Historical Memory book. Um, you know, we're so thankful to Mark and Caroline for and, and Haymarket um, for generously donating the proceeds of that book to help fuel our work. So if you purchase that book, 100% of the, the, um, the funds come to help with legacies operation. So yeah, I hope you follow us. Well, uh, yeah, of course I will. And, and um, certainly we'll, we'll have to have you back for, you know, kind of a, an update at some point. Um, this has been uh, Sarah Kolabdara, who is the executive director of the Legacies of War project, which deals with uh, the crisis of UXOs on the ordinance in Laos 50 years after the war. Um, you know, you're still having these kind of catastrophic events occurring. Um, this is the Green and Red podcast, and we really appreciate uh, all the support those of you out there are giving us. So please uh, share this and subscribe. Please rate and review. That would be awesome. And follow us on social media. And um, I don't know the, the, the URLs for all the various things we have. So I'm just you know, checking the notes. <laughs> Uh, and we really appreciate it, Sarah. This has been great. And, um, you know, uh, you're doing great work and, you know, good luck going forward. Thank you, Bob. Thanks, everyone, for tuning in and please share.